0: Welcome to That Said, I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Steve Drummond about his new book, The Watchdog, How the Truman Committee Battled Corruption and Helped Win World War II. Steve is a senior editor and executive producer at National Public Radio in Washington, D.C., where he has served for more than two decades. His work has been honored with many of journalism's highest awards, including three Peabody Awards, two Alfred DuPont Columbia University Awards, the Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Award, and the Edward R. Murrow Award. Steve holds a bachelor's degree and two master's degrees from the University of Michigan and presently teaches journalism at the University of Maryland. Steve Drummond, welcome to That set.
1: Thanks, Michael. Glad to be here.
0: So before we delve into the book, The Watchdog, How the Truman Committee Battled Corruption and Helped Win World War II, a fascinating book, I might add. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. I'm a journalist. I grew up in Michigan. I went to the University of Michigan Journalism School. Uh, For the last 22 years, I've worked at National Public Radio in Washington, where I've held a variety of jobs there. I've been the editor of All Things Considered. I was the national editor. And for the last few years, I've been our education editor. I, I lead our coverage of education. So how
0: did you decide to write this book?
1: Uh, Good question. It's a kind of a long story of an Internet rabbit hole gone uh, awry. Several years ago, I wrote an article for a Detroit magazine uh, about Detroit during the war. You know, Rosie the Riveter, uh, the production miracles that helped win the war. And in the process of that, I began researching a bomber plant that Henry Ford built outside Detroit, in 1941 and 42, it was called Willow Run, uh, a massive bomber plant. And in the process of reading up on this, I ran across these references to Senator Harry Truman coming to hold hearings and investigate this bomber plant. Early on, there were some problems in the production. And that kind of led me to, you know, what's a Truman committee and what's going on here? And through that, I, on the website of the Truman Presidential Library in, in Missouri, I ran across the transcripts of some of the oral history accounts that some of the young staffers on the Truman Committee had left. And I kind of uh, was reading these and and the journalist in me at some point was kind of like, wow, I, I think there's a story here. And that led me several years later to a book proposal and, you know, eventually writing this book.
0: And so the book recounts the Truman Committee and someone who has read several books on Truman was really surprised by what I didn't know about Truman and this committee, and so before we delve into the work of the committee, for the sake of context, tell us a little bit about Harry Truman and how he comes to be the chair of
1: this um, committee. Sure. Um, once upon a time, I think Truman's stories was well known to Americans, less so now. But he was a uh, uh, grew up in Missouri, Independence, Missouri. He was a farmer. He was a World War I hero. For a while, he ran a men's clothing store that went belly up in the 20s. Uh, He began serving in county government, aligned kind of with the Kansas City political machine, which is relevant to his story. And eventually, he was tapped by that Kansas City boss to uh, run for the United States Senate. He served a term in the Senate from 1934 to 1940, in which he basically... Sat there very quietly and didn't do very much and was probably one of the least known politicians in Washington, D.C. He narrowly won an election, a re-election bid in November 1940, in which, among other people, the president of the United States favored his opponent. And from there, it is early in 1941 that he gets the idea to begin this committee. And that will, you know, that's basically the focus of my story and how he ends up three years later becoming vice president.
0: And so the committee, to be clear, we're in the pre-World War II period. It's sort of 1940s turning to 1941. Europe is at war now for 16 months. Roosevelt famously says that never before since Jamestown and Plymouth Rock has American civilization been in such danger as it is now, and I want to make clear That it is the purpose of our nation to build with all possible speed every machine, every arsenal, every factory that we'll need for the war that he anticipates. And Truman hears this and says, Well, what? I need to think about what this means for the country.
1: Exactly. And soon after his election, he had begun um, getting letters from some of his constituents in, in Missouri where an army camp was under construction. As you just said, The nation was uh, Roosevelt was very clearly realizing that the nation would probably have to get into this war. And the United States was woefully unprepared for it. The U.S. Army in 1939, when war broke out, was ranked 17th in the world in size behind Romania. So there was a lot of catching up to do. The the United States needed to get ready and real fast. One of the first steps was to start build army camps where. The very small U.S. Army would grow to more than a million people. They were going to have to live somewhere and train and be fed and all of this stuff. So Truman starts getting letters from some of his constituents at this nearby, this Army camp, Fort Leonard Wood, it's called. And basically the letters are saying, hey, something's funny here. You know, uh, people are just sitting around. They're not doing their work. Uh, Contractors are getting rich here. Materials are just sitting around doing nothing. What the heck's going on? Truman, in typical Truman fashion, doesn't send a staffer out there. He doesn't, you know, show up with a big delegation. Amazingly, Truman got in his car one day in Washington D.C. in January 1941, and he drove straight out there. He drove to Missouri. He started wandering around, a little guy in a suit, asking questions. And from there, he kept going to a bunch of other army camps and construction projects. And he came back on this trip to Washington D.C. hopping mad, basically saying, "We're wasting a lot of money." We're, you know. Uh, Truman was a combat veteran himself. He cared deeply about the soldiers, but he also, you know, had been a businessman. He cared deeply about the taxpayers' money and whether it was being spent wisely or not. So that's where he got the idea for this committee, an, an investigating committee that he would run that would look at and say, hey, let's take a look at how this spending program is going. Let's make sure that people's money is being spent wisely.
0: So this defense mobilization phase pre-war is un ending money to defense contractors. And as you say, that worried Truman. And yep. so what is he specifically worried about, this cost-plus fixed-fee basis contracts as one example? Yep. And how does he go about getting a committee to investigate the defense mobilization in this pre-war period where, as
1: you said, everything is hurry up, no time to waste? Exactly. Exactly. Um, As you know, the normal way government contracts are let is you put out a bid, a bunch of companies bid on them, and the government will pick the one who says they can do it for the cheapest price. There was no time in the the race to get ready for war to do this. Everyone realized this. Their urgency was was tremendous. And that meant this thing you mentioned, cost plus fixed fee. In other words, the the Army needed 5,000 tanks. No one had ever made 5,000 tanks before. And so... They didn't know how much it would cost. They had to actually build the factory to make the tanks. Nobody even knew how much that would cost. So basically, the contractor would estimate, well, we think it's going to cost X million dollars. And the government would would write a contract saying, okay, we'll pay you X million dollars plus a certain amount for profit, a fixed fee profit. This was the way it was being done. And Truman was deeply suspicious of this. He thought that certainly people were going to be getting rich. He shared the Midwesterner's suspicion of big corporations and giant companies like General Motors or U.S. Steel, and so this is what led him to propose an investigative committee. He said, "Give me a few senators. We will not look at the conduct of the war. We will not look at military strategy. Um, you know, in the United States is still a peacetime uh, situation. Basically, we'll we'll just." Analyze these contracts, take a look at them and see if the money is being spent wisely and see if the see, see if the taxpayers get their money as worth. Well. That was the premise of it. Franklin Roosevelt was not at all crazy about this idea, nor was the leadership of the Democratic Party, an unknown senator poking his business into his own party's handling of the defense buildup. However, it quickly became clear that if a Democrat didn't do it, the Republicans are waiting in the wings, certainly ready to be to launch their own investigations. And so Truman's committee was seen as a bit of a safety, a steam valve, where they could sort of let him have his committee, let him run with it, and that it would take some of the pressure off of Roosevelt. The, the way they did it, though, was Truman had asked for $25,000. They cut that down to $15,000, barely enough to hire a lawyer and a staff But Truman was able to take that money and run with it and get his committee off the ground.
0: And he was particularly suspicious. You mentioned of the General Motors of the world, but he was suspicious, particularly
1: of these dollar a year um, people. Tell us how that worked. Right. And the dollar a year men were basically, I mean, Roosevelt and the administration were realizing, as I just said, they needed thousands of tanks, thousands of airplanes. Well, nobody in the government knew how to to make thousands of airplanes. There were plenty of people in the United States industry who were patriotic people, and many of them began corporate leaders, in other words, high-paid executives from Sears Roebuck or General Motors or wherever, and many of them were volunteering to come into the government service. Of course, the government couldn't pay them what they made in the private sector. Many of them just chose to come to work in Washington for a nominal fee, a dollar a year. So these were called the dollar-a-year men. And many of them did great service during the war. But as you might imagine, a a small town businessman like Truman was very suspicious of this. Many of these people were coming to Washington, sitting in an office now, cutting deals, signing contracts with the very companies that they had just left. And Truman was deeply suspicious of this.
0: So he has this committee. He's got $15,000. But one thing that struck me so prescient about the, the work of this committee and so antithetical to what's going on today is he says this committee to be effective has to be bipartisan. It has to resist the pressure from the White House, essentially to pack it with Democrats that will be, you know, go easy Right. on on the administration. So talk about that, because that sure. was really important.
1: Very much so. And a lot of time, once they granted him his committee, Truman spent a lot of time negotiating with the Senate Majority Leader um, and the Vice President uh, who would sit on the committee. And they, as you just said, they kind of wanted to pack it with Roosevelt loyalist people. There was actually a Senator, Tom Connolly, who was put on the committee to kind of keep an eye on Truman. Truman negotiated it so that it eventually the makeup was Five Democrats, including Truman, and two Republicans. Truman chose when he could, dedicated, hardworking, but not flashy senators. He had two Republicans on the committee who were friends of his in the Senate. And they all, you know, and then largely as a result of Truman's leadership, they all came together to work in the public service. And nobody was, you know... It was a it was a very odd as somebody who covers Washington today and sees the toxic partisanship that we all live in to see these people all of them kind of putting their politics aside to really try and actually figure out what was in the best interests of the public. You write uh, I love this sentence.
0: You said that Truman picked senatorial B minus list <laughs> senators whose distinguishing characteristic was a sort of unspectacular competence
1: yeah they were all many of them were in the first term none of them were the names that made headlines or were the majority leaders or the head of the appropriations committee or whatever they were quiet solid legislators but none of them were flashy and uh, you know which you know mostly could be said of truman himself until this moment in in his history and in the history of the nation um they were dedicated but not really the rock stars of the senate at that time
0: But Truman did something else that was interesting, which is he had an approach to handling the press. He was adamant that nobody on his committee was going to become the rock star. They were not going to use this to catapult themselves to national fame. Although, incidentally, of course, it did that to Truman. But he really ran the interplay between the committee and the press Very tightly. So talk about that, because that is also very different from what we see today, even the January 6th committee, which was a unanimous body, uh, similar to the Truman unanimity in their report
1: writing, but different. Yep. Um, Truman, it's really interesting to watch him learn and grow in the job here. And this was one of the areas in which he really excelled. I say in the book, and I say a lot when I'm talking about it, by setting out not to get a lot of press, the Truman committee... Weirdly, got a lot of it. When they put out a report, it wasn't spun to make one party or another look good. The facts weren't fudged to uh, to uh, present a, a, a more damning or more forgiving story. Uh, the names, you know, it wasn't about who got to issue the report or whatever. Truman would often step, to this, step back and let one of the other senators, even one of the Republicans, release the report or have their name on it and Significantly, there was a, a a real attempt, and this was something new in congressional investigations. Truman would send the draft of the report back to the Pentagon, back back to the Army, back to the Navy, back to U.S. Steel or Boeing Aircraft, and let them look it over. And if there were any facts, they would be allowed to make suggestions or changes. So, in other words, Truman tried really hard to make the reports airtight. He tried really hard to make them fact-based and not partisan, I mean, sort of in many ways the opposite of the way these things are often done today. And the press very quickly came to realize that when they got a report from the Truman Committee, they could count on it and that there was solid information in there. So as I said, by not seeking headlines, he ended up getting a lot of them. You
0: write that the essential working principle of the committee was not there to grab headlines, but to fix problems. If something's wrong, Truman says, let's get it corrected and not make a big to-do about it. But, and this is a big but, but there will be no sacred cows.
1: Mm -hmm. Many times Truman would pick up the phone. His whole point, especially, let's let's not forget, Truman was a politician and a Democratic politician. Many times he would call somebody in the administration. When the Truman Committee got a tip or was investigating something, many times he would call the Secretary of the Navy. Uh, he would call the Army Chief of Staff George Marshall, say, "Hey, you guys got a problem over there? You you better fix it." And if the problem got fixed, fine, no harm, no foul. Truman was Truman would m- much rather have had that happen than big headlines making everybody embarrassing the military or embarrassing Franklin Roosevelt. But when he got stonewalled, when he didn't get the information that he wanted, when he felt like the military was hiding something or a corporation was. Um, not giving him, not being honest with him. Truman had a temper, and that's when he would call the public hearing, and that's what they would, witnesses, corporate executives, admirals and generals would find themselves sitting in a room answering some really tough questions with reporters sitting there taking notes. And that was his kind of approach was, let's fix the problem if we can and not make a big deal about it. But when they didn't, well, Truman truman would truman would go to a public hearing. And That was the beginnings of give him hell, Harry. Exactly, very much so. So let's talk a little bit about
0: some of these investigations and the no sacred cows point uh, starts mm-hmm. perhaps best with his looking at the Office of Production Management, OPM. Tell us tell us about what Roosevelt's sure. strategy was and how Truman viewed it.
1: Sure. So, so much of this stuff, um, th- to change the economy from a peacetime economy to a wartime economy, this was a huge undertaking. And basically the government was going to, have to do a lot of things that historically and philosophically the private sector did. A big example is the allocation of materials. Suddenly, there was a certain amount of steel being produced in the United States, and somebody had to decide where it was going to go. Traditionally, the free market would decide that. Ford Motor Company would pay a little more than GM or some shipbuilding company. Now, the government was going to say, nope, Ford Motor, you can't have that steel. We need it to go to a Navy shipyard, or we need to go to a merchant shipyard, or we need to go to Chrysler Corporation who's making tanks. All of these decisions had to be made based on what was most important for the military, not what was best for the free market system. All of these things had to be managed and regulated. Roosevelt had created a very cumbersome system to do this called the Office of Production Management. Um, It had four leaders, the Secretary of the Army, the Secretary of the Navy, a former labor leader named Sidney uh, Hillman, and uh, William Newton, who had formerly, he was a dollar a year man. He had formerly been the president of General Motors. It took a long time to get decisions made. Uh, th- basically, the whole system was a mess. Everybody knew it. Truman was uh, holding hearings in which people were coming saying, this is a mess. We have shortages of rubber. We have shortages of aluminum. Nobody knows what's going on. And then this is a case, a a good example of Truman's uh, kind of political sense. He was going to put out a report that's saying the Roosevelt administration's handling of all this was a mess. What he did, though, was three days before that report was released, he took it over to the White House and put it in Franklin Roosevelt's hand. Roosevelt used this as political cover to get rid of the OPM, move all these people into different roles. And on the day that Truman was going to release his, his report in the Senate, Roosevelt announced a big shakeup. He was going to appoint a new production czar. And from Truman's point of view, that was fine. He says in his memoirs, I didn't care who got the credit. Roosevelt got the credit, but the job got done. That was kind of Truman's approach.
0: You mentioned it. Let's talk a little bit about it. You saw that in the army camp building. So talk a little bit about that, because he says Truman writes that I'm sorry to say that I did not think the army had done a very good job in camp construction. There had been a lack of foresight and planning, a large amount of inefficiency. As a result, I believe there were several hundreds of millions of dollars that had been wasted. So talk about that, because this came into him, as you said, by letters from his constituents.
1: Right. And it was their first, for their first big investigation, Truman was kind of looking for low-hanging fruit, an easy target, and they chose these army camps. There were hundreds of them being built around the country. The Truman Committee chose to look at nine of them and what they found time after time was money being wasted, materials sitting out in the snow, going to waste, men sitting around playing cards and not doing the job contractors soaking the government for many times more profits than they had ever made. Let me give, just give you one example. At one army camp in Florida, uh, a contractor had rented Ford Ford motor company had rented Ford pickup trucks to the government for $900 a piece. The Truman Committee found the government could have bought them outright for $600, all kinds of things. Their investigation found time after time these camps had been put in the wrong place. There was no planning to, well, how were they going to get a railroad there? How were they going to get water? How were the men going to be fed? How would the food get there? All of these things, the Army had done a terrible job. They had just done all this 20 years earlier, and Truman was shocked to find out that the planning for the Army camps, nobody could seem to find them. His basic point from the report that every newspaper in the country picked up on, he said, the Army was building camps along Civil War lines. They weren't taking into account, oh, we're going to need some concrete parking spaces for tanks or trucks. Oftentimes, these vehicles would sit there and sink into the mud or the dirt because nobody had planned there. Oh, they they needed gasoline depots and all of these things that a modern Army would need. The Army had completely ignored all this. Anyway, it was a bit of a fiasco and this is the first report that got truman on the front pages of just about every newspaper in the country
0: but it's it's delicate here because we're in this national defense buildup. everyone is rushing to do if you will the best they can uh, roosevelt's presidency sort of hangs in the balance of the success of all this and here is truman this junior senator from missouri so sort of like poking and poking yes. and poking the fact that he survives this is is a testament to how he performed yeah
1: it very much so is and as i said it's kind of fun to watch him navigating this this was in reading all of his personal papers and thousands of documents in the national archives you see truman trying to figure this out he knew this report this army camp report the first one he knew it would be very critical of the government um he was very careful to Caution and say, listen, we built a lot of Amherst camps. This is a tough job. We're doing a lot. We, you know, we're we're having a lot of successes, but we could be doing a lot better. That was kind of the very delicate line that he tried to walk. As and many many times it would get him in trouble uh, on the Senate floor. Of Michigan Senator Vandenberg, a Republican, asked him, uh, "Who's who's to blame for this screw up?" And Truman said, "Well, you know, I kind of guess, uh, you know, it has to come from the leadership." And Vandenberg followed up you mean the White House? And Truman said, yes. So a couple of times he got in hot water with Franklin Roosevelt. But for the most part, he was at, by sticking to the facts, being very careful to keep opinions out of his reports. He was able to sort of highlight these problems and sort of keep the administration happy. The, the military did not like the Truman Committee and they can many of them did not like Truman as a result of this investigation okay. yeah. and many others.
0: And we'll talk about his battles with some of them in a minute. But in this part of the conversation, we've been talking about his interactions with the government, but he also had similar No Sacred Cows theory about major industry. And one of the big reports and hearings that he uh, undertook was around aluminum and the aluminum shortages and sort of essentially his conclusions about Alcoa, the Aluminum Company of America, and their monopolization of aluminum. So talk about that, because this was a profound determination that I think had ripple effects about monopolization long after this committee.
1: Big time. Everybody knew that this war would be a war of aviation and airplanes and that aluminum would, would play a huge role in this. And Truman was very critical of Alcoa Aluminum Company of America, was was at that time the major manufacturer of aluminum in the company, but there was plenty of blame to go around. The British um, had failed. There there was sort of a lot of uh, big corporations that controlled aluminum production around the world, and the British controlled a lot of the supply. What Truman also found was many American companies had been hoarding aluminum for a long time, expecting that there would be shortages and rations. Alcoa, the committee found, was... More eager to supply the auto companies to make cars than they were to uh, supply to the military, Uh, and that Truman felt like the Alcoa had been more interested in keeping other companies out of the aluminum industry rather than making sure that the United States had enough aluminum to fight a big war. Truman was very critical of that. He was very praiseful of a new company, the Reynolds Aluminum Company. We know them from Reynolds Wrap and other things, but a company out on the West Coast had kind of jumped in with both feet into the aluminum industry to give some competition. And Truman was very praiseful of that. So yeah, just one of many examples across so many different industries where the private sector was working in its own free market interest, but not in the interest of the United States or or the military or the U.S. government. And
0: if you read some of the findings from the committee hearing on aluminum here, I'll read to you what you, you wrote, <laughs> um, which is a quote of the Truman Committee, which says, It is reasonable to conclude that Alcoa, the aluminum company of America, which at the time produced nearly all of the aluminum in the United States, had convinced OPM, the Office of Production Management that we talked about, of the adequacy of the supply in order to avoid the possibility that anyone else would go into a field which for so many years they had successfully monopolized.
1: Yep. And that's basically they were saying, no, we are perfectly capable of supplying all the aluminum the U.S. government needs. That's basically what Alcoa had been saying, and and the and and then suddenly there was a giant aluminum shortage. Everybody was pretending to be shocked by it, and many people in the government and and uh, researchers and economists had seen it coming for a long time.
0: And Alcoa essentially decided that they would prioritize their profits and their monopoly status over war readiness and truman called him out on it he did and we saw that in other industries too which is why truman was critical of these dollar a year men who th- he thought were sending favorable contracts to their own companies from which they would profit you know in, in the years to come when they return to their companies and he didn't like that one bit
1: truman um was a small businessman he kind he he frankly he was a little bit naive about how industry worked and he was very suspicious of big giant corporations one of his early reports noted that some large percentage of defense contracts were going to uh an area roughly the size of new england we're talking about detroit and cleveland and pittsburgh and you know uh buffalo the industrial heart of the country well as someone from missouri who had been a small businessman and was hearing from a lot of small businesses saying hey We're struggling here. How come, you know, send us some of this stuff. In some ways, this was one of the key focuses that Truman brought to the committee. And in some ways, it wasn't, as I said, it was a little bit naive. If somebody was going to make thousands of tanks or giant bombers in a factory with an assembly line a mile long, well, the United States was better equipped than any country in the world to do this. But that was largely because it had giant corporations like General Motors and Ford and U.S. Steel to do it. And so Truman was kind of always pushing back against these large corporations, but I'm not really sure that this notion that small businesses somehow would leap into producing tanks or uh, submarines, as I said, it was a little naive.
0: I I think this small business set-asides, which we see a lot in government contracting today, in the defense mobilization, and then, of course, during the war, was just not well considered. And I think Truman, in the end, came to recognized yes. that there was a naivete about
1: that. Yes. He did stand up for many subcontractors. Truman was a powerful advocate, and there were ways in which small companies could be subcontractors. They could make a component or part that would contribute to the larger production. And he was he was very strong in his advocacy for those people, standing up for the little guys, the way he looked at it. And frankly, it played well with the American people, and it was one of the things that made Truman and his committee so popular.
0: And in fact, it sort of set the predicate for his 1948 run for for the presidency. Of, Big time. He is the little guy's advocate.
1: Yep. And many so, people. This is what this is the thing that I, I saw happen as I'm researching this story. Is over time, stories started to show up in the paper, and people really started responding to this kind of quiet, simple, plain spoken uh, senator who seemed to be looking out for them.
0: One of the things that was so interesting to me in the book was an area that I call delivering bad news. And you write that at times during the war, it seemed that one of the most important roles played by the Truman committee was bringing Americans bad news. They did not want to hear.
1: Yeah. And let me cite a couple of examples. And it's not just me saying that people at newspapers and, and writers at the time, and historians who've studied Truman since say this ended up being one of the things that the Truman Committee kind of did. As we all know, no government likes to release bad news uh, to make themselves look bad. They will, if left unchecked, hide it, bury that bad news. And many times during the war, Truman and the Truman Committee ended up. Uh, playing this role. I'll give you just two examples that I think that I think helped. One of the first big reports, the Truman Committee looked at airplanes and airplane manufacture. It was part of the aluminum shortage. How were we doing? Were we making enough airplanes? And one of the things the report said was that um, while the bombers uh, that the United States was making were the best in the world, the fighter planes, the little planes that would go up and shoot down the other fighter planes that were attacking the bombers. Frankly, they weren't that good. They were inferior before the U.S. entered the war and after. They were not as good as the one that German pilots and Japanese pilots or British pilots, for that matter, were flying. And the Truman Committee pointed this out. And while many people were angry, Americans don't like hearing that they're not the best of anything. But the American people in the press responded to this pretty well, saying, hey, we didn't know this. We should know these things. Another great example came in 1943 and involves what's called the Battle of the Atlantic. Britain was standing alone against Nazi Germany. Hitler had taken over much of the European continent. Only Britain stood against him at this time. And the way that Britain was surviving was was from food and material and equipment brought from the United States. That was done by ship from the coast of Canada or the U.S. to Great Britain. In between in the Atlantic Ocean, however, were German U-boats, the submarines that were sinking these ships at a at a terrifying, frightening rate to the point where at some point Britain's survival was threatened. In 1943, as after Pearl Harbor, once the United States is in the war, the Truman Committee published some accurate figures that said basically the Germans were sinking these merchant ships faster than the United States could build them. This information got out in the press in one of their reports. Front page news all over the country, and many newspapers said, hey, we need to know this stuff. Thank you, Senator Truman. The Baltimore Sun was very powerful and eloquent in saying, hey, this is the kind of information the Truman Committee tells Americans that we need to hear. Of course, the uh, one person who did not like that information getting out was the Secretary of the Navy, Frank Knox, who came out in the papers a couple days later saying Truman had the facts wrong. He had made up the numbers. This wasn't Right. And a week later, Knox had to uh, eat those words and basically issue an apology saying, oh, well, yes, I guess the Truman Committee did have it right after all. Mm. And
0: and another uh, example that I want to turn to the war years, because we're still talking pretty much pre-war, was rubber. Rubber was another.
1: (laughs) The rubber, rubber was one of the first big crises of the defense mobilization, as you say, before Pearl Harbor. And it was the one that was going to most affect pretty much every American in the country because that meant tires. There was a huge discussion of whether the auto companies should keep making cars. There were even discussions, as you recall, about rationing gasoline, how much gasoline the, the Americans could have. But what Truman realized and said in his report, it wasn't really gasoline rationing. If people could have all the gasoline they want, they still... Didn't have enough tires. Uh, there was a giant shortage of rubber. The Japanese had captured most of the rubber producing areas of the world. There was no no alternative sources at this time. There were no good answers to making synthetic rubber. And so the military needed rubber, tons of it. And so very early on, Roosevelt had to um, limit the amount of tires people could buy. They had to limit the gasoline you could have. And then eventually they would have to tell Ford, GM and Chrysler they had to stop making cars.
0: Truman reports, he says, quote, it is pretty clear that there will be no new tires for civilians for the next three years.
1: There's an example of the Truman Committee telling Americans some bad news that people didn't want to hear. But coming from the Truman Committee, it kind of carried that stamp of, oh, I guess I can trust this information. I kind of said I can believe this. And this is what Roosevelt and the Democratic leadership had realized was a function that the Truman Committee could serve, was kind of the bearer of bad news. It offset the responsibility on the
0: Roosevelt administration. Oh, very much so. Very much so. So December 7th, a day that will live in infamy, uh, Pearl Harbor is bombed. And Roosevelt gets on the radio and he says the production capacity of the U.S. must be raised far above present levels. Even though it will mean dislocation of the lives and occupations of millions of our own people, we must raise our sights all along production line. Let no man say it cannot be done. We have undertaken to do it. So this was a clarion call to to Truman. If he was worried about fraud and waste and abuse just during the defense mobilization period, now we're at war and things are different. And I expect his role uh, as an antagonist has to, be calibrated a bit
1: oh very much so and the first thing that happened after pearl harbor was the Under Secretary of defense robert patterson wrote a letter to franklin roosevelt saying hey we got to get rid of this truman committee where there's a war on we don't have time to be traipsing up to capitol hill all the time with all these documents with this is unpatriotic truman saw this coming he gathered the senators on the committee in a room uh, a day or two after Pearl Harbor. And they said, What should we do here? And basically, they, kept, they, developed, they came out with a very careful statement, probably aimed as much as Franklin Roosevelt as the American people, that said, Hey, this isn't the time to quit our investigation. It's the time to keep doing it. We need to make sure more than ever that the best airplanes are being produced, that steel is going where it needs to go, that rubber is not being wasted and that the industries that need it the most are getting it. Roosevelt eventually sided with Truman and said the tr- committee could keep doing its work. And from then on, they would they would keep at it. But again, they also had to walk this very careful line of not seeming unpatriotic, not seeming, as one committee staffer said, a common scold, but that they had to be holding the government's feet to the fire while at the same time pointing out the amazing miracles of production that were taking place all over the country by nineteen forty one even the United States was well on track to making more bullets and tanks and planes than and ships than anyone could ever have imagined, and far more that the than the economies of Germany, Italy, and Japan could make but yeah truman had to Truman had to walk a careful line
0: so he had to be both cheerleader and bearer of bad news exactly. all at once and he did a, a fine job of it, as we'll see uh, as his career mm-hmm. progresses but I want to talk about two examples of how this plays out, and one of them is the matter of steel and substandard steel. You start the book talking about mm-hmm. the the breaking up of a ship right after its launch. So why don't you start with that story? Yep. It's a great way to start the book I, I, and then tell us about the evolution of the investigation of the American steel industry.
1: Happy to do so so as I just said. German submarines were sinking merchant ships faster than the United States could build them. There was a desperate demand. It's weird. One of the major priorities of World War II was we need merchant ships to carry soldiers or tanks or planes or whatever across the seas to Europe to get them to the battlefields. In other words, at the start of World War II, it took about a year to make one of these ships. By the end of the war, it could be done in a month. Uh, a, a man who made that happen uh, was somebody who's kind of been forgotten to history a little bit, a man named Henry J. Kaiser. We know him today best for the healthcare care plan that carries his name, Kaiser Permanente. But at the time, he, he had gone from being one of the largest road builders in the United States when the defense mobilization happened to say, hey, let's see if we can build ships. Shipyards began appearing all over the United States, and they were applying the same kind of mass production techniques. To building ships, and gradually, at first, dozens, eventually hundreds, and finally thousands of these ships were being churned out at, at speeds nobody could have ever imagined could be done. One of the reasons was they were, uh, unlike the, say, the Titanic or earlier ships that were riveted together, these giant plates of steel were fastened together to make the hull through rivets, Kaiser and others at the time were saying, let's weld them together. It takes less skill, it's faster, it's cheaper, and it's stronger. So they were cranking out these Liberty ships and tankers that could carry oil. So sorry for that long setup, but that brings us to January 16, 1943. A brand new tanker ship, the SS Schenectady, is sitting at it, it just, just finished, getting ready for its maiden voyage at a shipyard Kaiser had built in Portland, Oregon. Uh, about 30 men were on board that night. They were loading it up for its first voyage. All of a sudden, a giant sound rings out. People could hear it a mile away. The, the security guards at the shipyard felt the ground shake. The police and firefighters raced to the scene. Of course, it's wartime now, so a call went out. Hey, you know, maybe it's a, maybe some, a bomb went off in a ship or something, sabotage perhaps. The FBI gets there. Everybody starts investigating. And what they see is this giant ship, 543 feet long. And it looks like a giant has picked it up and snapped it in two and broken it. And it's sitting there. The front and the back are down in the mud. And the middle is kind of jackknifed up out of the water. And there's a 10-foot crack running down this ship. Everybody's like, what the heck happened here? Well, you know, what's going on? Investigations began. And there was a lot of concern. If something was wrong with the design of these ships, this was serious trouble for the United States and for Great Britain and the efforts to, to move goods around the world. Well, it wasn't until about three months later that Henry Kaiser himself was testifying before the Truman Committee. The senators were asking them that day about these production miracles, how he was how he was building ships so fast, how he was reducing absenteeism in the workplace, how they were managing to create so many ships in so little time. Finally, toward the end of that hearing, one of the senators says, oh, by the way, Mr. Kaiser, that's my understanding one of your ships just broke in two. Uh, sitting there quietly at its mooring. Kaiser did not want to answer the question. He dodged it a couple times and they said, no, we want you to answer this question. He said, well, the problem is bad steel. We're getting bad steel from uh, a ship from the Carnegie, Illinois steel company, which was a division of us steel. well, Everybody was shocked by that. But the most shocked people were the young staffers on the Truman committee because they sitting there listening to Kaiser. They knew that for months they had been getting letters from a guy at that very steel plant saying, hey, something's going on here. They're fudging the inspections. Bad steel is going out the door here. Immediately the next day, these investigators, Truman had them on a plane to Pittsburgh, and they were going undercover to find out what was going on in this in this steel plant.
0: They had a whistleblower, George Dye. He wouldn't, it wasn't such a thing as a whistleblower statute then, but this guy, George Dye, who worked there, saying they're defrauding the United States and putting our ships and the people who are to be transported at risk. Committee didn't listen to him at first, but this oh. was a revelation and they jumped into action about it.
1: Early on in the Truman Committee, and it's one of the cool things about the committee and telling this story was Truman went on the radio in 1941. He said, hey, Americans, we need your help. If we're going to investigate this stuff, if you see something going on down at the factory or down the shipyard, let us know. Write to me, Harry Truman, you know, you Senate office building, Washington, D.C. And gradually, and then in an accelerating way, more and more Americans did. Eventually, they're getting 100 letters a day from people all over the country. Hey, Senator Truman. A lot of them were just saying, hey, thanks for doing a good job. Some of them were from inventors. The Truman Committee called some of them crackpots. It's basically people with some idea uh, for winning the war or not. And then some of them were what we would today call whistleblowers, people saying, hey, you should check this out, or hey, something funny is going on here. Well, this guy, George Dye, at the Pittsburgh plant had been writing for over a year, but his letters were so technical and full of jargon. I've read them in the National Archives. Some of you can barely understand. And it's kind of easy to see why the Truman Committee staffers reading them kind of blew them off. They thought, this guy's a nut. Um, and they put them kind of in what, you know what's called the crank file or the crackpot file. Suddenly, when Kaiser made this statement, they realized that this guy had been on the up and up. And they went out to Pittsburgh. They sat down in his kitchen in Pittsburgh and they talked to George Dye. And the next day they went over to the steel plant to see what was going on.
0: And sure enough, they were fabricating uh the strength of the steel yeah
1: yes and this is another one this investigation became known as the fake steel investigation all over the country every paper in the country pretty much the next day fake steel being produced at u.s steel the letters poured into truman many many of them they're very emotional many of them saying hey my son is fighting overseas how dare the steel company be making profits extra profits Giving bad steel when I have family members who are risking their lives overseas people were really angry about this one yeah
0: the thing that you just said too was though that many people wrote in with lots of good ideas, many of which the the Navy for example rejected outright but Truman said well let's let's give them a bit of a listen and maybe you can give us the story of the Higgins boats as, <laughs> as an example
1: I'll happily do it so. Michael, you've seen it, I've seen it our whole lives, uh, the story of D-Day. We've seen the ships, uh, the landing boats coming ashore at France at Normandy Beach. Tom Hanks is riding in one of them, and the ramp goes down, and, and the soldiers uh, run up. This was one of the central questions of World War II, both in the Atlantic and the Pacific, was how to take thousands of men across a sea or across an ocean, get them within two or three miles of a beach. How are we going to get them off of those ships, and onto the beach under the fire of an enemy. The answer was some kind of landing craft, they were called, were needed. People all over the world were working on this problem, and one of them was a New Orleans boatmaker named Andrew Higgins. And he had come up with a very simple, efficient design for a wooden boat that had a ramp at the front that could carry soldiers or larger versions could carry tanks and carry them from a boat in a choppy sea through shallow water, and land the men or the equipment on the beach. However, at this time, the Navy had earlier developed its own design. The Navy had a Bureau of Ships that had developed a a design for a a landing craft. And and specifically, the Truman Committee was looking at the ones designed to to put a tank on on the beach. The Navy had its own design. Many people, even in the Navy, knew that it was a bad design. It was unsafe. It didn't work well in Heavy seas, it was underpowered, and uh, it was dangerous, frankly. This man Higgins kept raising his hand to the Navy. Hey, I've got a better one. Come down here. Take a look. I'll show you. It's cheaper. It's better. It's more. It's stronger. He was a bit of a loudmouth. He was very brash. The Navy didn't like him, and the Navy bureaucracy tended to close ranks around itself. So finally, one day, uh, Andrew Higgins was in Washington. He went into Truman's office and said, hey, Senator Truman, help me out here. Truman came up with a pretty good idea. He wrote to the Navy and he said, let's take this guy's boat and put a tank on it. And let's take your boat and put a tank on it. And let's put them in some rough water and let's see which one works better. This happened down off uh, near uh, Newport News or Norfolk, Virginia, and the big military facilities down there. And basically Higgins, they put a 30-ton tank on these two boats. Higgins' boat chugged along several miles, dropped its Tank on the beach and then came to circle around uh, the Navy's design, which was near floundering and heavy seas to make sure that the Navy design didn't sink. Pretty much after that, the Navy was forced to admit its mistake. They uh, signed a contract with Higgins for hundreds of his uh, what eventually became called Higgins boats. Dwight Eisenhower said later in life that it was one of the signature inventions that made the victory at D-Day in Normandy possible was Andrew Higgins and his Higgins boats and also on many island invasions in the Pacific as well. So this is one of the most tangible success stories of the Truman Committee was that without Truman's intervention, these boats might never got have been made and these men and this equipment might have been going ashore in dangerous, unsafe vehicles.
0: You know, it's funny when I got the book and I looked at the subtitle of it, which is How the Truman Committee Battled Corruption, I thought, well fair enough. And then you write And helped win World War II. And I thought, well, that's probably an overstatement. And then I get to the Higgins boats, I think, well, that's probably an understatement.
1: Yep. And it's hard to say help win the war, but many times they intervened both in saving money, of increasing efficiency, or in this case, of making sure that the People, you know, the combat fighting men had the equipment that they needed, and so I—it's uh, it, a bit of a stretch, but I think not too much.
0: Yeah, no, I think actually it may be a bit of an understatement if you <laughs> look at the—if you look at the two examples we just talked about, right? Ships breaking in half and landing craft that actually allows D-Day to be successful. Right. It's hard I, to I, overestimate the importance of that.
1: I could mention one other major investigation. There was an aircraft engine factory near Dayton, Ohio, that was making engines that were going into uh, airplanes, bombers, and transport planes. And for months, the committee had been getting letters from people there saying, hey, this is not good. Uh, The inspections are bad. We're under extreme pressure to, to produce and corners are being cut. Truman said an investigator out there, and sure enough, time after time, dozens of workers in this place said, this is a mess. And they began investigating, and Truman would say often that these, you know, bad engines were going out the door and possibly causing the airplanes to crash. No one knew if the, if the plane crashed and the pilot died, nobody knew why. Uh, but it was clear, and in one case, they found 300 engines ready to ship out of this factory that had rusty parts, missing parts. Uh, they were gummed up inside the works. They they were defective, and Truman again held, Curtis Wright was the company, held Curtis Wright to the fire, and, and once again, front page news, eventually three of the, um, the inspectors from the Army Air Force were court-martialed and kicked out of the service for cutting corners and fudging the inspections.
0: The one thing, and then I want to bring us close to the end of this, the one thing mm-hmm. that the Truman Committee did not investigate was widespread and systemic racial discrimination in the Navy plants and the military. Uh, So talk about it, because ultimately, Truman is going to end segregation in the military. But at this point, he doesn't seem to be there. So tell us a little bit about that and his evolution.
1: Yeah, very much so. Truman had grown up in a former slave state of Missouri, born less than 30 years after the Civil War at a time uh, in a deeply racist place. And he absorbed a lot of that as a young man. He began to grow up a little bit learn in the army. He encountered actual Jewish people, for example. He made a, had a very good friend who he later went into business with was Jewish. Some of his anti-Semitism began to abate, although not completely and not ever in his life, and his same with his bigotry towards Black people. But as a county commissioner in in, in Missouri, he began also to realize that these were citizens of the United States who were entitled to the same protection of the law as any other citizen. And that was kind of the grounding of his growing awareness of racial issues at the time. And as you say, later on, he would make civil rights a priority of his administration. But the Truman Committee finds him not there yet. No sooner had the Truman Committee been created than Black leaders around the country started writing to him and others and saying, well, you want to investigate the defense program Why don't you investigate the widespread racism in the military and the widespread racism in defense contractors? Some of them, some of the big ones were pretty much had a policy that Black people could not get a job. So in other words, here are taxpayers' dollars being spent to discriminate against people. Truman initially promised to look into this. He had scheduled some hearings, a dispute among civil rights groups uh, forced the cancellations of these hearings, which was Probably lucky for Truman. Franklin Roosevelt wanted nothing to do with this issue. The leaders of the Democratic Party wanted nothing to do with this issue. Roosevelt would be facing a tough re-election in 1944. He did not want to anger the South, which was still, uh, you know, deeply segregationist. And so Truman kind of, it's there's no other way to say it. Truman basically put this on the back burner. He promised and promised to investigate this, but they never... Quite got around to it when he became the vice presidential candidate in 1944. The Republicans were very quick to point this out, saying, "Well, he did all these investigations, but he never looked at this uh, discrimination in the war plans." Most black leaders gave him a passing. Well, uh, he Truman uh, had a fairly good record on anti-lynching and other legislation in the in the Senate, and he had supported black citizens in. Missouri to a degree that his opponents had not. So Truman basically got a pass is about as about the best you can say here.
0: In conclusion, I want to read to you something which you quote from a Harper's Magazine article in 1945. Uh, You quote, it says, with all due allowance for the accidents of mortality and politics, it is clear that Harry S. Truman was lifted into the White House by his performance as an investigator. So tell us. How is it that this obscure Missouri junior senator finds himself being selected by Roosevelt, replacing Henry Wallace, a three-term vice president, beloved by the left, the Bernie Sanders of his time? How does that come to pass?
1: Yeah, very much so. And it's, it's again, it's the thing that got me excited about this whole story is watching Truman go from a complete invisible nobody in Washington Three years later, to a national figure and being chosen by Roosevelt. By 1943, as I said, these these reports of the Truman Committee, Truman was becoming a bit of a national hero. His everywhere he went, the press was waiting for him. They had questioned Truman Committee to investigate this or that. When he a couple of times humorously, when he checked into a hotel, he would give the clerk his name and they would say, "Well, I hope you're not going to investigate us." Um, but Truman had basically become a national figure. Time magazine put him on the cover in 1943 and with the headline, Billion Dollar Watchdog. So he had become a national figure. Even so, as you say, Wallace was very popular. The American people loved him. The Democratic leadership did not. He was considered kind of a pie-in-the-sky liberal. He wasn't practical. He had a lot of ideas that could hurt the, the Democratic Party in the election. They were that He was too far to the left. So there was a lot of efforts uh, behind the scenes to replace Wallace. Early on, there were many more, many other Democrats, much more prominent, who were considered the front runners. Jimmy Burns, who was the uh, one of Roosevelt's uh, leaders in the Senate, and later went into the administration, But, Michael, many of these leaders also had a problem with race. Many of them came from southern states. Some of them had been members of the Klan. Truman's relatively clean record on race was one of the things that gradually elevated his name to the top of the list. Uh, Truman, by the way, all along is saying, I don't want this job. I do not want to be vice president. Of course, you and I both know many people who have this before and since have said that. Truman apparently meant it. His wife really, really best did not want him to be vice president. But by August 1944, his name had surfaced. It was coming along. Truman was in a hotel room in Chicago when Franklin Roosevelt got on the phone and with Truman listening in, basically said, has that uh, Missouri mule taken the job yet? And uh, Truman was pretty much ordered by Franklin Roosevelt, said, does he want to break up the Democratic Party in the middle of a war? Truman basically had no choice but to take the job at that, hearing that. And he accepted Roosevelt's invitation to join the ticket and become vice president.
0: And 82 days later, he's president of the United States as Franklin Roosevelt dies on April 12th, 1945.
1: Exactly. It's quite a story. And for me, it was a, a heck of a lot of fun. Truman is a is both a fascinating guy and a fun guy, too. And I really, you know, watching, reading reading his letters to his wife, his humor, his humility, his anxiety over so much of this. It was a lot of fun to, as I said, watch him grow into the job and and sort of watch him preparing for national leadership.
0: The book is called The Watchdog, How the Truman Committee Battled Corruption and Helped Win World War II, which we now know is not an understatement. (laughs) Steve Jumman, thank you so much for appearing with us today.
1: Uh, Oh, Michael, it's been a great pleasure. This is real fun.
0: That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.